0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we wanna to discuss post-operative nausea and vomiting, which is a big issue in our field. What can we do pre-operatively, Interoperatively and postoperatively to reduce the the risk of this nausea and vomiting that occurs in these patients. So we want to talk about different drugs that we give, different pathways that can cause these patients to have a vomit response and what we can change with our anesthetic plan to minimize the risk factors.
0: This is a a major consideration for the anesthetics that we give. Often this is reported as being a larger complaint of patients, even more than postoperative pain. So the first thing that we want to look at is how this happens in the first place. And like we talked about in the ANS discussion, there's receptors that are involved. And first, we're just going to talk about these receptors. And we'll talk about the different pathways that use these receptors here in a minute. But having a good understanding of these receptors will be key as we move forward, both for understanding why they are becoming nauseous, and then secondly, how we can prevent that from happening. So, the first one we want to talk about is the 5 HT3 receptor, and that uses serotonin as a neurotransmitter. You also have neurokinin 1, dopamine receptors, histamine receptors, muscarinic receptors, and then there's also cannabinoid receptors, but we're not really going to talk about that much today. A little mnemonic that I've heard that would be helpful for this is DASH CAN. So, if you're nauseous, obviously you're running for the CAN, and this would be a good mnemonic to remember this. So, DASH CAN. D stands for dopamine. A would be acetylcholine, which is your muscarinic receptor. S is your serotonin, which is your 5-HT3 receptor. H is histamine. CA is your cannabinoid. And then N is your neurokinin-1 receptor.
1: With these different receptors, there's different pathways that can trigger what we call the vomiting center, which is located in your brainstem. So we want to discuss each different pathway and discuss which receptors go with each pathway so that when we start talking about drugs, we'll be able to look back and figure out which pathways the drugs are gonna affect. So the first pathway is obviously your GI tract. If a patient has signals coming up from the GI tract to that vomiting center that caused that patient to vomit, that's gonna be going through two of the receptors that Tanner just talked about, and that's your 5-HT3 and your neurokinin-1. Then you have your chemoreceptor trigger zone, This is going to come from an area up in your brain where we'll get to this a little bit later, but the blood brain barrier is not very strong at this area. And so different chemicals that are in your blood are actually going to be able to cause a response at this chemoreceptor trigger zone. So that'll be very important when we get to that in a second. But the other receptors here are going to be your 5-HT3, your neurokinin-1, and your dopamine receptor. And then, like I said as well, those noxious chemicals from the bloodstream are able to cause a response as well. And the third one we want to talk about is your vestibular apparatus. And so that's more coming from your ear. So if you have vertigo, motion sickness, that'll be from this pathway that causes people to vomit. So with your vestibular apparatus, you're going to have your histamine and your muscarinic receptors. So those are the three main pathways we want to talk about today. And each of those three pathways are going to cause a response at your vomiting center in your brainstem that's going to end up causing the patient to have emesis. So the drugs that we give, if we give a drug that's going to block your 5 H 3 receptor, we'll know that that is going to block the GI tract pathway and then your chemoreceptor trigger zone pathway, but it won't have anything to do with your vestibular apparatus.
0: To me, this is like the vomiting center is like your cranky family member that is going to get really ticked off if you discuss politics or their least favorite sports team or whatever else. There's different ways that you can really upset this family member. And so all these different pathways are discussions or topics you want to avoid. And so what we're going to do as anesthesia providers is hopefully block these pathways before it even ever gets to the vomiting center and thereby reducing all these effects. So the vomiting center is going to be hanging out in your brainstem. Like you just mentioned, Cole, you have these peripheral and central pathways that will send afferent signals to the vomiting center. And so our goal is going to be blocking these different things. What are things that are going to cause the GI tract to send these afferent signals to the vomiting center? If we do stomach surgeries, if we do insufflation of the abdomen with pneumoperitoneum, if somebody has a MI, this will be something that they'll send these afferent signals to the vomiting center. Uh, Blood in the GI tract, those are all things that will send these visceral responses to the vomiting center through the vagus nerve. Your chemoreceptor trigger zones, pretty interesting because like you mentioned, Cole, it doesn't have protection from the blood-brain barrier. This is going to be affected by things that are in your blood. Think about in the ICU, we probably all took care of a patient with DKA. They came in cranky, horribly nauseous, and that was because of these chemical toxins that were in their bloodstream. And so as those go to the CTZ, that's going to send signals to the vomiting center. The medications that we give, the opioids, anesthetics, those will all affect the CTZ because of the levels in the blood. And then also, if you think about someone who is pregnant and has high levels of estrogen, again, this is another thing that can trigger the chemoreceptor trigger zone. As we move forward, we'll talk about some of the risk factors. And now that we understand these different pathways and what can set them off, I think those risk factors will make a lot more sense.
1: Yeah. And so when we look at different risk factors, there's five big ones that we consider as anesthesia providers that put these patients at risk. There are a lot more factors that play into this, but there's five main ones that we calculate on our APFELT score. And that will correlate to the percentage that the patient is at risk of having nausea and vomiting. So the five things are non-smoker, female gender, history of motion sickness, previous post-op nausea and vomiting, and age, specifically youth. And so going through those five, why would they each be risk factors for nausea and vomiting? Well, obviously, if they had previous post-op nausea and vomiting, you would suspect that would put them at risk for having another episode of post-op nausea and vomiting. Second one would be history of motion sickness. That's going to be coming from your vestibular pathway, which, like we've talked about before, that's coming from your ear, motion sickness, Deals with vertigo, the balance in your ear, if that's off, it's gonna cause that response at, at the vomiting center. So if they have the history of, of motion sickness, that puts the patient at risk. Female gender, for what Tanner just talked about, females obviously have more estrogen levels than males. And so those high levels of estrogen can can trigger that chemoreceptor trigger zone due to that blood brain barrier not being as much of a barrier at the site, which then goes to your vomiting center and causes emesis. This changes with age, though. So, this is why youth plays a role in one of our five risk factors. Because you could have a female that's postmenopausal, and they're not going to have that elevated level of estrogen. And so, they're not as high of risk as a 20 or 30 year old female that has higher levels of estrogen.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of these things are still speculation as far as why these things cause increased nausea, vomiting. But my understanding with the youth side of things is that your chemoreceptor trigger zone is going to be more sensitive as you are younger. And then as you age and as things start to slow down, that will be less sensitive. And so there isn't quite as much of a risk factor due to your trigger zone not being as reactive.
1: The last one we want to talk about is non-smoker. So this is one of the only things that I've seen when it comes to healthcare that you're more at risk for something from being a non-smoker than if you're right. a smoker. And there's
0: don't don't become a smoker just for this uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. one thing.
1: are <laughs> a lot of negative things in smoking. This, this is only <laughs> one positive. It's all that risk benefit ratio. So with non-smoking, there, like Hannah was saying, a lot of this is speculation with different factors that cause nausea and vomiting. One of the things that we think about with smoking is smoking induces the enzyme activity in your liver, which breaks down drugs such as your volatile anesthetics. And we're going to get to it in a second, but volatile anesthetics increases your risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. And so if you're a smoker and you have that nicotine and those, those levels that induce your enzymes in your liver, it's going to break down those medications faster. And so these patients that wake up will be able to break down and clear that anesthetic faster than a, a patient that is a non-smoker and doesn't have that induction of their liver enzymes.
0: Perfect. The simplified Apfel score it just looks at these main characteristics and then it tells you a percentage for being at risk for postoperative nausea vomiting depending on how many risk factors you have. So if you have no risk factors, you're still at a 10% risk for displaying postoperative nausea vomiting. If you have one of these things, you're at a 20% risk, two of them correlates to a 40% risk. Three of the above gives you a 60% risk and four of the above puts you at risk 80% or greater for post-operative nausea vomiting. The more of these risk factors they have, you're going to want to, again, as we talked about earlier, figure out strategies that will incorporate several of these pathways and the types of medications that you give, you want to address these risk factors from a multimodal approach. Okay, so the next thing I'm going to talk about just briefly, we'll get into this a little bit later. When you're looking at the type of surgeries you're doing and the type of anesthetics that you're giving to these patients, apart from their inherent risk factors, these are also additional risk factors that need to be considered. Things like giving your halogenated anesthetics increase their risk. Opioids increase their risk. We talked about why it has an effect due to the chemoreceptor trigger zone. Procedures that last over an hour. If you have laparoscopic surgeries, GYN procedures... Neostigmine is kind of a debated risk factor, but that's something to keep in mind. High levels of nitrous, they think that has issues in your vestibular system. Atomidate, prefer to give propofol. They're not really sure why Atomidate increases the risk factor, but that's another one that you will want to remember. And then also the fluid status of your patient can be a risk factor so those are all things apart from just what the patient inherently has going for them. Those are all things during the procedure and also with our anesthetic that can increase their risk factors.
1: So when we look at these different drug classes, as Tanner said before, when you weigh the risk that a patient has for nausea and vomiting, that will determine how many of these different classes of medications that you, you want to give to this patient to decrease the their risk of having nausea and vomiting postoperatively. So if I have a patient that's very low risk, I may not give a full panel of these drugs. But if I have a patient that's very at risk of having post-op nausea and vomiting, or if I don't want them to have post-op nausea and vomiting. So for example, if I have a patient that during the surgery, they're going to get their jaw wired shut but they don't have any previous risk factors. When I do my, my risk factor score at the beginning of the case, I'm still going to want to give a wide array of these medications because I don't want them to have nausea and vomiting if their jaw is wired shut. So depending on the patient will depend on how many of these medications you're going to give. And that's the beauty of being an anesthesia provider is we get to, to use our brains and think about things and determine what we want to do. So the first class we want to talk about is your 5-HT3 antagonist medications. So. Remember, 5-HT3 is going to be the receptor in your GI pathway, which goes to your vomiting center, and then your chemoreceptor trigger zone. So the main medication we want to talk about is Zofran. This is the gold standard for post-op nausea and vomiting medication, and it's going to block serotonin at these receptors. So it's an antagonist at this receptor. Now, when we talk about all these medications, we want to talk about when we give them, whether it's preoperatively, at the beginning of our case, at the end of our case, postoperatively, and a lot of it depends on the onset, duration, and the peak of action of these medications. So I don't want to be given a medication that peaks after six hours or doesn't have an onset until at least two hours at the end of the case. I want to give that preoperatively. So with this medication, Zofran, we want to give it at the end of our surgery because it has a rapid onset. And we can use it as a rescue medication if we're having post-op nausea and vomiting and we need to give something to help that. Now you want to look at, when we talk about these medications, if we're going to give a rescue medication, meaning we've already given our basic meds and now the patient is currently experiencing nausea and vomiting, we're going to give it as a rescue form. If we've already given a 5-HT3 antagonist, you're not going to want to use Zofran in this case as a rescue medication. Literature shows you want to give something from a different pathway to cover all the different pathways that are going to be causing this nausea and vomiting. So just because Zofran is a very good medication, I give it all the time in the ICU when my patient had nausea and vomiting, it doesn't mean it's your go-to rescue med if you've already given a 5-HT3 antagonist. Mm -hmm.
0: So this blocks the serotonin at the 5-HT3 receptors. And like you mentioned, that's going to be found in your GI tract and also your chemoreceptor trigger zone. So if you give them opioids postoperatively, and they get nauseous, you understand that opioids is going to be affecting your CTZ. So now you can start to think, okay, what do I want to give that will block that? Giving an anticholinergic isn't going to have any effect on your CTZ. So this is where you just have to think a little bit, think about what your patient looks like, what are the circumstances surrounding their nausea and vomiting, and then try to cover them appropriately. The next one we want to talk about is their neurokinin-1 antagonist. The main one here is going to be amend, and this is a PO medication that you give preoperatively. This will block, again, the neurokinin-1 receptors. So this is what you find in your GI tract, also your chemoreceptor trigger zone. So similar to the 5-HT3 as far as the situations that you'll want to give this, but it works on different receptors. So like you mentioned, Cole, when you want to give something from a different classification, that's a good one to consider.
1: Another one we want to talk about is your dopamine antagonist. So remember dopamine receptor is going to be in your chemoreceptor trigger zone or your CTZ pathway. And how this works is if you block the dopamine from going through, it's going to block the signal from your CTZ pathway going into your vomiting center. Medications in this category are going to be your Haldol, Droperidol, your Regland. And some things to note is with Droperidol, there's a black box warning for that due to at higher levels, it can cause torsades. And this is due to high levels such as 25 milligrams, but the doses that we give are only 0.625 to 2.5 milligrams. So since the, this black box warning came out, there's been a dramatic decrease in the use of this medication, but it really isn't going to have that black box warning come into play until we're giving elevated doses. So
0: you'd have to give 10 times the amount of the highest dose to get to the black box warning of torsad.
1: Yep. So we really can use this medication because it's a great medication to help as in a rescue form. Haldol is the other one I talked about that we use here. It works similar to Zofran as well in terms of it. it's a really good drug to use. It's a different pathway, but it also acts as a sedative. And then Reglin, if we use that in this category, it's also a GI motility stimulator. So we don't want to give this medication if you're going to have a patient with an obstructive bowel, ileus, anything that we don't want to keep moving that GI tract forward because it's obstructed. Now, with all these medications, because we're blocking dopamine, it can cause extrapyramidal side effects. So if you remember extrapyramidal side effects, we usually see in Parkinson's patients when they have a decreased level of dopamine. For that reason, we don't want to give these medications to people that have Parkinson's because we want to increase their dopamine levels in those patients. And by giving these meds, we're going to drop it. So again, with the side effect that you want to look for is an increase in your QTC with these medications. Perfect.
0: So the next one we want to talk about is antihistamines. And if you recall our pathways, GI, CTZ, and your vestibular system, the only one that has your histamine receptors is going to be in your vestibular apparatus. We'll be involved with patients that have history of motion sickness. If you are doing surgeries that are going to manipulate the inner ear and you want to block this pathway, then you are going to want to do an antihistamine Common one here is Benadryl. We've all heard about. it. We've all given it. A common side effect of Benadryl is going to be sedation. So like you mentioned, Cole with the Haldol, it may be effective, but then you have issues with delirium as they are emerging from their anesthetic. And so this one isn't used as commonly, but may be necessary for someone that is having nausea and vomiting rooted in their vestibular pathway.
1: Great. And another one we want to talk about is anticholinergics. So again, with the vestibular apparatus, with the histamine receptor, the muscarinic receptor is also going to be in this pathway. And so what these medications do are they block acetylcholine in the vestibular pathway. A big example of this is scopolamine. Scopolamine is one of those medications that takes a long time to have an onset of action. And so we want to give this medication well in the preoperative period. Literature shows we want to give it at least two hours before surgery. Mm -hmm. Tanner talked about before how neostigmine is kind of a controversial issue with this. But when we're giving neuromuscular blocker reversal medications, what that's going to do is increase our acetylcholine levels at the neuromuscular junction to reverse that neuromuscular blocker. Well, that elevated acetylcholine levels can also bind to our M1 receptors here in our vestibular apparatus pathway and cause motion sickness and cause vomiting. And so the argument is if we're going to be giving neostigmine, we're going to increase the levels of acetylcholine and cause this emesis. So we should give it an anticholinergic such as copalamine to block the effects of it.
0: The next category we want to talk about is steroids. The most common one used for PONV is dexamethasone. Usually you see doses of four to eight milligrams right after induction. You can give this prior to induction, but it makes the patient feel very weird. And so often it's just given right after induction. You can use this in place of, if you need to give them a stress dose steroid, you can give them just this dose to treat both their post-operative nausea vomiting and use in place of their stress dose steroid. And then the last one we're going to talk about, is the phenothizines, And the main one you'll see here is Phenergan. We've seen this a lot in the ICU. This is pretty effective at treating opioid-induced nausea, vomiting. But again, like we talked about with several of these other ones, a side effect of it is that it's going to have sedative effects. This can be given as a rescue medication, but keep in mind that this may have some implications as far as your patient's awareness and also sometimes with their emergent delirium. Those are the main ones that we want to talk about as far as the different medications that you are going to give your patients. I think the idea here is to remember that you have your vomiting center, which is going to have several different pathways that can cause problems. So the strategy would be to block all of those pathways before they get to the vomiting center. So Cole, do you want to talk just briefly about some of the different strategies that you can use to give your patient better outcomes?
1: Yeah, so with the medications we just talked about, if I'm giving a medication that is, for example, let's say Benadryl. So Benadryl, like we talked about, is going to be an H1 receptor and a histamine, and it'll block just our vestibular pathway. So, I'm going to want another drug that's going to cross the other two pathways. So, I may give Zofran because I know Zofran is going to have, block serotonin at your 5 HT3 receptors, which will be both in your GI tract pathway and then your chemoreceptor trigger zone. So, knowing which receptors are in each pathway is imperative to doing a full coverage for blocking post op nausea and vomiting. So, just know what medications you've already given which receptors they're going to block, which pathways they're going to block. That way, if you have to give a rescue med, you know what you've already covered and what you still need to cover. In terms of our anesthetic, as we kind of briefly touched on before, halogenated anesthetics, so your volatile gases are going to increase post-op nausea and vomiting. So an example would be if you could do a regional anesthetic versus a general with these volatile anesthetics, well, that would decrease the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. You can also do Ativa, which is a totally IV anesthetic, so we can run propofol instead of our volatile anesthetics, and that would decrease the risk. So if you have a patient that comes in, you look at their risk factors, and they show they're going to have, let's say, a 60% chance of this nausea and vomiting, I may look at the the case, look at my anesthesia plan, and decide, can I do this either regional, or if not, can I do this general with Ativa, or do I need to use my volatile anesthetics, So it's not just medications that we give, but it's our anesthetic plan that's going to decrease the post-op nausea and vomiting. Especially Mm -hmm. in longer procedures, we know that it's going to be an increased risk. What kind of procedure we're doing, as we briefly touched on before, if we're doing a pneumoperitoneum due to a laparoscopic procedure, we know that increases the risk of post-op nausea and vomiting. So just tying all these things together to weigh the risk versus the benefits of what we can change in our anesthetic plan to minimize the chances of nausea and vomiting.
0: Great. So I think that it's important to remember that we're looking at all these topics from a pretty high view. And so obviously there's a lot more that goes into the specifics of each of these pathways. And there are some other pathways that are involved in nausea vomiting as well. But I think for us and for what we need to know delivering safe anesthesia, I think this is a pretty good summary of what you'll need to know. Hopefully this is helpful for you and you are able to use this as you go into clinical practice.